Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. Today we're going to share something really special. This is Terrell Givens' talk that opened last year's Restore Gathering. In it, Terrell gets more personal than we've ever heard him. He tells a dramatic story about nearly drowning off the west coast of Africa and how the experience has helped frame key aspects of his faith. Terrell also mentions some other really meaningful moments from his life and career. And in one of our favorite moments, he says, I have come to know the love of God as it is manifest in a community of people working to keep one another from drowning. We imagine that almost all of you know Terrell by now, but as a reminder, he's a Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at BYU's Maxwell Institute. He formerly held the Jabez A. Boswick Chair of English and was a professor of literature and religion at the University of Richmond. He's the author of many books about Latter-day Saint history and culture, including, along with his wife Fiona, All Things New, which was published by Faith Matters in 2020. Thanks, as always, for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this talk from Terrell Gibbons. Hello. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here and to follow on the heels of someone whom I dearly love, Thomas. Uh, I wasn't sure he got the message clearly. He was supposed to put you into a hypnotic state so you would be receptive to anything that I say. And I want to talk to you about some Amway sales. Uh, now, um, I'm going to do something that I that I'm, I'm not accustomed to doing. I, I, want to, uh, I want to share with you today some very deeply personal uh, experiences. And, uh, and I want to do that because I feel that I am uh, among people that I love. And uh, so I'm going to begin by talking about a day back in early June of 1992. And I was with a group of fellow scholars uh, on the west coast of Africa. We had gone there as part of a a kind of educational, uh, intercultural tour. And I got up very early on the morning of June 8th and went for a walk on the beach. And I encountered a a fellow colleague. As we were walking along the beach, we looked out. It had been a very stormy night the night before. The sea was very rough. And he pointed out there and he said, is that a person out there? And I said, no, I think it's a boy. He said, no, I think it's a person. And at that moment, two Ghanaians came running up to us in some anxiety. And they said, that is your colleague. Your colleague is out there and she's drowning. So without thinking it through, I, I peeled off my shirt, I jumped into the water, and I began to swim. Now, uh, if you were to ask Fiona, she would confirm that to say I'm not a strong swimmer is an understatement. I'm a sinker. But uh, I struck out for where this person was, and I found that within a very few seconds, I had been carried out to where she was floating on the water. 
And it was very quickly evident to me why she was out there and why she was in distress. It was a very powerful riptide that had caught me and carried me out. Hence, the numerous signs on all sides, absolutely no swimming, dangerous riptides. As I got within a few yards of her, I could see the fear in her eyes, and she said, Terrell, I can't make it back. And uh, at that moment, I still had energy and confidence, and I took her hand, and I said, we can, we can swim back together. And I began to pull her in tow, and we were immediately bashed and battered and knocked apart by the, the violence of the currents. And then she spoke to me a second time, and she said, Terrell, we're drowning. And uh, that wasn't a terribly helpful comment, <laughs> but it was accurate, and we were. And uh, I was swallowing water, and I was flailing, and uh, it was a remote area of the coast. There were no, no lifeguards, no boats, nobody was going to come to rescue us. I thought I could see in my mind's eye my family, my children, uh, greeting a body sent home. And I determined that I would make one final valiant effort. I would swim underneath the current. That tells you something about my state of mind. And so I, I went deep, and I swam as long and as hard as I could. And when I came up, I was so far away that I couldn't see the coast. And so in the next few minutes and seconds, I knew that I was dying. And uh, it was an experience that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. We, we all read the, about the near-death experiences that end happily, right? The light at the end of the tunnel. What I experienced in those next moments was just the absolute tunnel at the end of all this light. And uh, as I was about to give myself over to... To drowning, I heard her voice a third time, and she held the cross, Terrell, touch bottom. And it turned out that the same riptide that had carried us out had now carried us over a sandbar. And so about a fathom underneath our feet, there was solid ground. And so we linked hands, we pushed off against the ground made our way back until we collapsed in the surf and were carried ashore. I left the water that day a very different person than I had entered it. I, uh, I, I came to the realization in those moments out in the ocean of how little certainty I had about God, immortality, uh, the spirit and its survival. And uh, I was deeply shaken. And it was a few weeks before I could get back into contact with my family and have somebody to share that, uh, that, that trauma, that experience with. But I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't certain anymore that I knew anything. And uh, so I want to tell you about 
some part of the process by which I began to very deliberately and very systematically reconstitute my faith. And I want to do it by using those three phrases as a kind of framing device for this story. I can't make it back. We're drowning. Touch bottom. Rabbis tell the story of that moment in heaven when your parents had decided to enter into that kind of relationship and that kind of activity that would engender your life. And at that moment, Gabriel went to the treasury of souls and he selected your spirit and brought it to that place where your parents were preparing your body. And Gabriel pointed to your parents and he said, those are the people who will give you life. Those are the people who will love you and nourish you, and whom you are to love and nourish. And this is the mission that we give you to accomplish in your life. And then he whispered into your ear. And then he put his finger to your lips and said, shh, now you must forget it all. And you were ushered into life. It's a beautiful story. And it's one that has always had profound resonance with me. Not everybody has that intuition. Not everybody is as confident as William Wordsworth was, that trailing clouds of glory, do we come from God, who is our home? But I've always sensed something about the the immortality, the pre-mortality of the soul. I've always sensed that I came from a different sphere, And that one of my purposes here is to discover and rekindle the connection that we all have as eternal beings. In the 1930s, which button do I push here? Is that right? In the 1930s, there was a sudden outbreak in New York City hospitals of an alarming rate of infant mortality. Suddenly, newborn babies were just dying at a catastrophic rate. Physicians and scientists rushed to the scene. They did tests. They studied the children and the conditions. They couldn't find any pathogens. They couldn't find any viral scores. They couldn't find bacterial infections. The children continued to die. And then somebody noticed the interesting fact that these skyrocketing death rates were only taking place in the affluent neighborhoods. They eventually traced the problem to the use of incubators. This is a photograph of a hospital that was delighted to have enough funding from affluent patrons and residents to procure the latest technology in the medical field, incubators. They had been invented just a few years earlier and used on chicken farms to great success. And people thought, well, what's good for a chicken is good for a baby, right? So why were the babies dying? 
because deprived of human contact, they failed to flourish. And once they assigned nurses and volunteers to hold and cuddle the babies, the death rates dropped. The great Jewish mystic Martin Buber said, the longing for relation is primary. The cupped hand into which the being that confronts us nestles. As I looked for a way to ground, to reconstitute my faith, the first experiences that I had that took me in that direction were my experiences of human connection and my conviction that there is something eternal and durable about human connection and that we can make it back if we engage in that task collectively. A favorite photograph of mine from World War I, this soldier was drowning in the muddy fields in World War I, and he's being pulled out by his comrades. I'm guessing that we all have felt at one time or another that we are drowning. Inevitably, right, life is just constituted in such a way that sooner or later we experience the worst that it can throw at us. There was a time early in our marriage when we were drowning financially. We had struggled and labored and kept out of debt all the years through a difficult graduate school experience. Received our first contract offer. Um, I, still, I still remember the moment when I got the phone call from the dean. He said, uh, Dr. Gibbons, we're prepared to make you an offer. We'd like to start at 27, but we're prepared to go much higher. And I said, oh, no, no, that'll be fine. <laughs> I thought it was impolite to ask for more. You can see why he didn't go into business. <laughs> so we, my wife and I arrived in Richmond, met with a realtor to look for our first home, and she thought that I was joking. She said, you're, gonna, you're looking for a house on that salary? <laughs> well, we found something eventually, and, uh, and we moved in. And over the next months, we found ourselves sinking deeper and deeper into debt. We just couldn't. We couldn't make the payments. And, uh, and good news came that interest rates were dropping significantly. And so I went to the bank, filled out an application for a refinance. And uh, good news, you qualify for this refinance. It would be a substantially lower monthly payment. I went home a very happy father and husband. Friday afternoon... I received a telephone call from the bank. The loan officer said, Mr. Givens, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but uh, your loan actually didn't go through. Uh, there was a required house inspection, and your roof failed the inspection. And because the closing date is Monday, I'm afraid there isn't really any time to, uh, to take care of that. 
So unless by some miracle a new house, a new roof appears in the next 48 hours, you, you can't get the loan. So I made a phone call, and I called the Elder Scorn president, and I explained the situation. And he said, you have those shingles ready tomorrow, and we'll come help you put on a new roof. And the next morning, 12 elders showed up, and we put on a new roof. I told my, uh, my department chair on Monday morning, I told him what had transpired over the weekend. He was a very religious man, very devout in his own faith tradition. And he listened and kind of marveled at what I had said. And I still remember that 10 years later, he popped his head into my office. And he said, I've never forgotten that story. I can't believe there's a community of people where you can make a phone call. Twelve people will show up to put a new roof on your house. I think one of the two greatest religious poets who ever wrote was Gerard Manley Hopkins. And this poem came to mind many times in those years. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. I have come to know the love of God as it is manifest in a community of people working to keep one another from drowning. Now, the third thing that I heard that day was the words touch bottom. So the question I want to turn to now is, what does that mean? Where do we find the foundation beneath all foundations, the truth beyond any truth? And of course, you may anticipate that I'm going to say, well, it's the love of God. And it is. It is the love of God. But here's where I want to turn to my real focus this morning. What do we mean by the love of God? And I, I think there are two ways that we can answer this question. One is the historical, and one is the personal. Now, right now, in my own work, I am I'm writing a history of Christianity. Uh, presumptuous and absurd as that may sound, probably is. And the point that I'm making, and the way I'm writing this Christian history, is is based on the the thesis that I think is historically demonstrable, that there have been two fundamentally opposed ways of understanding God and his love. One is the God of Anselm. Don't worry about that name. He's a medieval philosopher. It's the God of Anselm. And largely influenced by Plato and the Stoics, early Christian theologians very early on began to emphasize God's transcendence. He is self-contained. He is self-sufficient. He is without body parts or passions. He is insulated from the vicissitudes of human experience and emotions. 
And the other God is the God of John and the God of Luke. And it's my belief that we can historically demonstrate that one can understand Christianity, its catastrophic decisions and directions, as well as as its beautiful contributions, in terms of an oscillation between those two conceptions of God. And so let me share with you why I believe not just as a historian of religion, but as a disciple, that we have solid bases for embracing the God of John. Now, everyone knows the expression, God is love. That doesn't get us very far. Um, I, I like the historian Tom Holland. He once wrote, moral mayhem results when love is unmoored from its theological foundations. In other words, we have to have in mind a rigorous and consistent conception of what we mean by love and what we mean by God's love. Now, going back all the way to the, oh, as early as the third and fourth Christian centuries, we find some of the church fathers making statements like this, and they make them in abundance. Man's justice is not God's justice. Human love is not God's love. Language is inadequate to capture the reality of God, so we can't take anything the scriptures say literally when it comes to referring to the nature of God. John gives the lie to that with these words, because I want you to notice how important the first half of that statement is. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That seems to me pretty clear that what he has just said there is the love that God embodies is of the same type that you have experienced when you love. His love is not qualitatively different. In quantity and expression, perhaps. But what you share with God is that your essential being is love. I disagree with those philosophers and theologians, past and present, who say God is the embodiment of all perfections. Truth, justice, mercy, oh, and love is in there too. No, I, my understanding is that God's essential mode of being is love. All other virtues and attributes serve love. And let me share with you what has come to me very recently as a really important development in my own faith and understanding of God. And it's based on the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, you may may remember that story. It is narrated at the end of Luke's narrative. It turns out that the disciples on the road to Emmaus is one of the very most popular themes in the history of the visual arts. But there are three different moments of that story that artists have chosen to represent. Very commonly, they represent 
the passage that describes Jesus opening the scriptures to their understanding as they are walking along the road. Other artists, like Caravaggio, depict that moment when Christ sups with his disciples. But in my review of visual representation of this scene, there's another theme that predominates, and it's one that I'm guessing many of you might not even recall. Luke tells us that they are on the road to Emmaus, and as they approach the village, Jesus elects, in the language of one translator, to continue his journey. And the disciples constrain him. My favorite version is by Josef von Führich, De Gangdach Emmaus. And it's my favorite because here you see the actual human touch. And maybe this is why Luke used the word constrain. They constrain him. And what does Jesus do? He changes his mind. He responds. He accedes to their supplications. The most essential factor in the background of this story, this is the resurrected Christ. This is the perfected, deified Son of God. And he has just let us know that all those centuries of proclaiming God as impassable, as unaffected, as incapable of being moved by human needs, is laid to rest. As the embodied God, Jesus Christ is responsive to us. I derive from these stories what I believe personally are three essential truths about love. And they are as true of God's love as they are of our love. Love is costly. It is most costly in that relationality creates interdependence, vulnerability. It is mutually affecting with real stakes. It is the principal force of creation in the universe, constituting new conditions and realities. It infinitely matters and means. It puts everything into play, even for God. Because once you are interconnected with somebody, your future affects their future. And we cannot operate or exist in isolation from those dependencies and vulnerabilities that love brings. Love is universal. It extends across all divisions of time and place and condition. This was the most remarkable feature of early Christianity commented upon by first and second century observers. It's like, these guys are nuts. Slaves are sitting with masters. Rich are sitting with poor. Everybody is on an equal footing in this community. It has no preferences or prejudices. Love desires the good for all within its orbit. Any partiality in one's love could only be seen as a deficiency in the source of love, since all that lives is susceptible of that thriving, which it is love's nature to promote. And third, love is inexhaustible. Its manifestations and forms may change, but love's core impulse to secure the good of the other never wavers or diminishes. 
Love does not recognize barriers or impediments to its outgoing impulse. If God is eternal, so must his love be, and eternity is never spent. Or as Kierkegaard put it with brilliant concision, if one ceases to be loving, one never was loving. Those principles constitute the core of my faith and my commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to practice that discipleship within this institution. So what is the relationship between everything that I've said and the church as an institution? Elder Maxwell said, let us never mistake scaffolding for substance. And then three apostles have echoed those words and that language, saying the church is the scaffolding. It is not the substance. The substance is that endless, eternal, infinite series of relationships that God is trying to cultivate and to educate us in. The church is the most effective scaffolding to educate us and to train us to learn, in the words of William Blake, how to bear the beams of love. That is my belief. That is the core of my identity as a Latter-day Saint. I want to begin to wrap up with a story. In February of 2012, a woman with malevolent intent who was hired by an anti-Mormon organization to go into the family history library and shepherd a name of a Holocaust victim through the process, managed to do so successfully, at which time she then went to the press and announced Mormons, Latter-day Saints, are baptizing Holocaust victims. Ali Wiesel got, got a megaphone. Jewish spokespersons left and right were condemning the church for this outrage. I received a phone call days later from a Philadelphia radio station. He said, Professor Givens, would you be willing to come on a national program and talk about baptism for the dead? And I said, sure, be happy to, not knowing that the host was Jewish. And his first question out of the gate on live national radio, why are you baptizing my dead ancestors? And I said, well, those are the only ones that don't argue. Um, no, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really say that. No, I didn't say that. What I did say was this. I said, Latter-day Saints believe that at the last day, our Heavenly Father will prepare a wedding feast for the entirety of the human family, and he wants no empty seats. And we don't think you have to come, but as Latter-day Saints, we believe that it's our privilege to put everybody's name on the guest list. And that's what we do when we baptize for the dead. And he said, what an incredibly generous God. How do I get my name on that list? Now, certainly he was half joking, but I felt that he was half serious. He recognized in that moment that this is a conception of God of unprecedented generosity. This is a gospel vision of unprecedented ambition, that we want to be partakers in a heavenly sociality with every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. 
I close with the words of a Jewish intellectual whom Zach and I had the opportunity to interview in his Harvard office just a few months ago. We were sharing thoughts about religion, about the connection between Judaism and Latter-day Saints, and at one point we were asking, what can we learn from each other? And he shared with us what he thought was one of the most beautiful aspects of his own faith tradition. He said, as Jews... We refuse to let you say that you don't belong to us anymore. We love you so much that we want you to come back and will always be here. You think you have left, but you haven't really left. You are still one of us. It's my prayer that we can embody by our words and our actions that sentiment to a wounded world many of whom are our own fellow travelers. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I think we need to rearrange the furniture here. A little closer. Well, thank you, my friend. That was beautiful. Thank you. Beyond beautiful. Um, When we began this journey together, you were our first partner, I guess. Yeah, I was first guinea pig. Yeah. (laughs) Um, One of the things that we set on, the idea that we we need to renovate— our, our religious language is due to be renovated. Probably needs to happen every generation, perhaps. But that's been largely the project that we've been involved in together. I think you were beautifully articulated what love means. And also what the church means. And I think there's some... Um, <clears throat> I think commonly, when we as a people talk about the church... Like, if I say that right now, those two words, what comes to your mind? When I, I think probably for a lot of us, it's, Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's um, some men in Salt Lake City, like this institution. But you just opened up another way to understand the church, those two words. And so when we use that expression... Is that a part of our religious language that needs to be renovated? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I think it's interesting that when people do choose another path, that just that very expression, well, I'm leaving the church, or they left the church, um, that's an odd way to talk about what originally was a matter of discipleship. And I love the poignance of John 6, verse 66, when, right, Jesus has taught some hard things and many leave. And in, in, the, in the Greek original, what it, right, it's, what it says is, from that day on, many walked no more with him. What a beautiful conception of what it meant to be a member of the church. It meant that you walk a common path. And I think part of the problem is, you know, and, and other scholars have written about this, that there's a, in some ways a tragic transformation that occurs from the Old to the New Testament ways of conceptualizing faith, right? 
So when, when we talk about Abraham's faith, when Paul talks about Abraham's faith, right, the Hebrew word is really not faith as a set of assent, as assent to a set of theological propositions. It's loyalty, steadfastness, faithfulness. It's about this personal commitment that Abraham demonstrated to God. And then suddenly in, in the New Testament, we begin morphing into, no, faith is about listing the things that you agree to. Yes, I believe Joseph was. Yes, I believe this happened in 1830. Yes, I. And so consequently, the church has become this kind of institutionalized, formatted, agenda, right, programmatic kind of... To that point, we, we have 13 articles of faith, but they're really 13 articles of belief and have very little to do with faith, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, you know, when... when uh, Joseph Smith first assigned Oliver Cowdery to, to write the articles, uh, not of articles of faith, but the articles for the church. The uh, name has just slipped my mind, but what becomes eventually Section 20, right? And in, in Oliver's original conception, once a month, members are to stand and give an account of their journey of faith. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, and it reminds me of, and it probably was influenced by, right, the, the colonial, the Puritan tradition, that before you could be a member in full standing of a Puritan congregation, you had to, to witness to them of your conversion experience. And so from the little information we can put together from outside sources, that was the, that was the origin of the fast and testimony meeting. You stand up and you say, this is how I encountered Christ. This is how God became present in my life. And then at some point we get this template of intellectual propositions and what, what happened to faith as a personal encounter? Yeah. yeah. yeah um, if you use the, the metaphor of scaffolding to talk about the church, why is that such a particularly meaningful metaphor? Well, um, I, I'm going to push it a little, little further here. And this is, I'm just thinking out loud. Okay, can I do that? Um, you know, my favorite 20th century thinker and writer is Nikolai Berdyaev, incredibly profound religious thinker. And um, he said, the problem with Christianity is that they imported all of the structures and concepts of a societal justice. So we take a, a criminal penal system and we superimpose that on the heavens and make God the judge, and write different kinds of penalties that are, are assessed. And so what, what that term opens up, scaffolding, to my mind, is to reconceptualize the entirety of what it is that we're about, right? And this is why, you know, Fiona and I talk about premortality so often. Because it's only by positing a, a, a plan that was outlined in pre-mortal ages where, where God envisioned and articulated for us the, the scope of the vision, right? I am going to bring you into eternal relationality with me, what Joseph Smith called eternal sociality. And this, we'll need a scaffold to do this because we're human and we're fallible and we work in social arrangements. We need structure and we need authority and we need callings. And so all of that has to be in place. But if we understand the eternity of the scope, then we see how provisional the structures are. 
Um, and I think, if I can venture a little further, I think that's what Joseph Smith was pointing us toward when he said in section 121, uh, no power influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Just stop there. And already, what is he saying? That in the eternal scheme of things, relationships cannot be founded on hierarchy or on power or claims to authoritative status. But Joseph Smith restores priesthood keys, right? The priesthood has an important role to play because, as I said, within this frame of reference, we need institutional structures for mutual support, for the synergy of people coming together in a common effort in order to, to provide a, a mechanism and a conduit for, for divine truth and keys and, and all of those reasons. But don't mistake the structure for the end. Which I'm afraid we do too often. When we talk about... We talk probably too often about the church almost as an end in itself. We reflect yeah. endlessly about, about our faith. But we're real, our, the church is scaffolding. and We're building something eternal, and eventually that scaffolding comes down. And thank you, scaffolding. That was amazing. Like We, we couldn't have worked together if we didn't have it. We couldn't have raised to the next level to... Construct that beautiful thing we're constructing. I also love the church's body of Christ. I love that metaphor. So if, I think if we could, as a community, when we say the church, if that's what we have in mind, it kind of changes everything. I, I, um, in the, uh, and I became, when I was younger, somewhat uncomfortable with this covenant we make in the temple to like consecrate everything to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, because I was thinking that's just an institution, but it's not. As soon as that, as soon as that covenant meant to me, my brothers and sisters, that's what I'm covenanting. I'm in a covenant relationship with them. That that completely changed the degree to which I could. Yeah, 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 and I and I love the fact that the scriptures do give us, especially restoration scriptures, give us a number of alternative terms, right? Mm. And I think part of what that's trying to tell us is there are much richer and ampler ways of conceptualizing of what the church means, right? It's the, it's the congregation of the Lamb of God, it's the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, it's the Church of Enoch, it's the Zion, it's right. So it has all of these different forms it assumes in historical moments, but all that endures is the. Celestial sociality that we're working toward. Love it. Well, I think we're out of time. At a at a break, and I just really want to thank Terrell. Maybe uh, give Terrell a hand for this wonderful presentation. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this talk by Tarot Gibbons from our Restore Gathering last year. If Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really does help us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.